So, Mrs. Murray, what we're doing today is giving young Joseph our routine newborn screening. Uh, just a few standard tests and measurements that will give an indication of future healthcare needs, which will hopefully be few. <laughs> I hope so too, Doctor. I'll need to take him into the examination area with Nurse Stacy. Oh, I can't come with him? I'm afraid not. But you're welcome to observe through the window. Okay, I, I guess. Don't worry. It'll be over quickly. Right. Let's get you on the scales. Six pounds, two ounces, nurse. Heart rate next. 116 BPM. All perfectly normal, Mrs. Murray. Thank you, doctor. Nurse, pass me the reptoculum. What the hell is that? You're not putting that thing near my baby, are you? No need to panic, Mrs. Murray. The reptoculum's our latest biorobotic instrument. A real breakthrough in deterministic cognitive forecasting and predictive senescence with 100% accuracy. Despite its rather alarming appearance, I can assure you it's perfectly safe and certified by major insurers. Get that disgusting thing away from my baby's face right now! Joseph! Oh god! Oh god, it's crawling into my baby's mouth! Stop it! Mrs. Murray, control yourself. The process is harmless. There we go. I'll upload the reading, then we're done. Please give me my baby back. The final reading is 2024. What's that? What does it mean? I'm very sorry, Mrs. Murray. It's his expiration date. After a baby is even easier these days thanks to medical science. It can really help you schedule things effectively. That's what we learned from author Lisselle Jones from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Newborn Screening, performed by Jake Benson and Tanya Milosevic. As I look out the window, I see the snow lightly falling on the ground. And a glance at the calendar tells me that we've already reached the month of December. How festive! And with Season 18 ramping up to its gripping conclusion, here's what you can expect during the Holly Jolly Holidays. The Season 18 finale will be released the weekend of December 18th. That means the following week, 
the weekend of Christmas, we'll see the release of our special Christmas episodes. A full-length Christmas episode for one and all coming out on December 25th. And for Season Pass 18 members, your stockings will be stuffed with a special Season Pass bonus Christmas episode that day as well. Hours and hours of horror entertainment for you while unwrapping those gifts and smooching under the mistletoe. So plan to file those Xmas episodes, uh, Xmas files, if you will. File them in your calendar and get ready for a month of sleepless gifts. And now our stories are starting. You'd better not leave. Our tales are quite true if you want to believe. In our first tale, we meet a woman recalling a job she had in her younger days. She worked part-time cleaning the old house where one of her teachers lived. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ellen Denton, she soon learns that the household secrets from its past, one's best left undiscovered. Performing this tale are Danielle McRae, Kristen DiMercurio, and Mary Murphy. So be respectful for those you work for and for all living things, from people right down to the lowly grasshopper. When I was in my junior year of high school, the factory my father worked at burned to the ground leaving its 400 employees scrambling to find work. Jobs in a small town are hard to come by, but we all did our part. I learned from the school guidance counselor that one of the teachers, Miss Anna Linus, mentioned wanting to find someone to help part-time with household chores. She lived with her sister Emily in a large Victorian home inherited from their parents. I went to Miss Linus's classroom to recommend myself with a job and assured her that, if hired, I would work diligently at whatever was needed. She was a rosy, rotund woman with an ear-to-ear smile and laughter in her eyes. She cheerfully hired me on the spot. I was to work for three hours each day after school, six hours on Saturdays, starting the next day. The three-story Victorian was on the outskirts of town on two acres of well-maintained landscaped grounds. The house was quite imposing. Looking from the outside, to the right of it was a neat row of painted sheds and the largest greenhouse I'd ever seen and a fine-looking tack. And stable house made from tumbled stone was to the left, now devoid of horses. If the well-manicured grounds and stately structures hadn't looked as regal as they did, I wouldn't have been so surprised when the front door was opened to my knock by the broomstick-thin, sour-faced sister, Emily, and revealed what I can only describe as a vortex of filth and decay within. On that first day, when I walked into the wide entryway, there were black plastic bags filled with foul-smelling trash piled up against the walls, waiting for monthly transport to the town dump. When I timidly ventured to ask why they didn't place the garbage outdoors and then have the cans emptied weekly by the sanitation department, as was the normal custom in town, 
Emily Linus looked at me with annoyance and pointed out, as though it were obvious, that the big metal trash cans would besmirch the appearance of the grounds. I was next shown into what appeared to be a formal drawing room that, under other circumstances, with its high ornamental ceilings and breathtaking stained glass windows, would have been magnificent. Now, the corners of its floors, walls, and ceilings were festooned with cobwebs thick as birds' nests. The threadbare carpet was stained everywhere. There was a large decorative wood table with a busted leg that lay on its side, with stacks of old magazines and newspapers spilled from it onto the floor in a yellowed haphazard heap, which I later learned had been there like that for the last two years. I could see, peeking, out from under a ruffle of floral upholstery, at the bottom of a chair, a mousetrap with a dead rat in it, now mostly gristle and bone. I was then given a tour by the expressionless Emily Linus through a few other rooms in the house that were on that first floor, and soon saw that most of the surfaces were coated with inches of accumulated dusts, some of it dotted with dead flies. I had to restrain myself from gagging when I entered the kitchen because of the smell from rotting food left in a stack of unwashed dishes piled up on every counter. There were dead cockroaches floating around in a cauldron of oily water sitting on the filthy stove. I almost slept at one point on a chunk of greasy meat on the kitchen floor. After seeing a few more spaces of similar ilk, I reminded myself how badly my family needed the money and how scarce jobs were. Forced an eager look onto my face, swallowed hard and turned to Miss Linus. What would you like me to do first? I was relieved when she told me to check the flower beds encircling the house for weeds, adding the comment that you can never put too much time or work into keeping the outward appearance of a home looking lovely. She then explained that her sister, Anna, would be returning late from the school that day, and that she would be the one to assign me further tasks when she arrived. You could have practically gotten down on your hands and knees with a magnifying glass to find any weeds in the beautiful and well-tended beds, which I soon learned Emily saw too personally along with the lavish paintings in the greenhouse. The rest of the grounds were cared for by a full-time gardener. Anna Linus didn't show up that day while I was there, but she did on the day after that, which was a Saturday. That's when I got to see the second floor of the house and heard something alive moving around in the third. The second floor was every bit as horrible as the first, and in some cases, worse with one exception. Emily Linus's bedroom was as fresh, sculpted, and beautiful as the grounds surrounding the house. There was not a speck of dust anywhere. The four-postered bed, the slip-covered chairs, and the long, billowing curtains were cheerful-looking and spotless. A lovely cherry wood writing desk sat in one corner, and hook rugs brightened the floor. The entire room smelled like springtime, which I soon saw was because of a large vase of lilacs on a bedside table 
and a bouquet of yellow roses atop a bureau. I was not actually shown this room by anyone, but took a peek inside when I knew the two sisters were occupied with something downstairs and would not catch me snooping. That day, I'd been brought to the second floor by Anna, who wanted me to remove all the boxes and trash in a library so that she could get at the books. There was a lot to do, and it would take me at least the entire six hours of that first Saturday. The work was extremely unpleasant because of the rodent droppings and cobwebs. On top of that, the library smelled so terrible that I began habitually checking my watch to see how much longer I would need to be there before my six hours were up and was finally relieved when I only had an hour left to go. I was walking down the hallway with one of the remaining boxes to place it at an unused bathtub when I heard a dull thump on the ceiling above me. I stopped and looked up for a few moments and then heard it again, except this time it was five thumps in rapid succession. And there was urgency to the sound, like someone pounding on a door who desperately needs to get in or out right away. There was a pause of about three seconds. Then three more bumps, this time slow and deliberate. This was followed by a prolonged wail, muffled by the layers of floor and ceiling above me. This pained sound rose in pitch until it became an unearthly scream, also distant and muffled but sharp enough to make the hairs on my arms stand up. Sure, there was someone alive up there. I raced downstairs to the sisters, who were sitting in the drawing room, and asked them about it. They both stared at me in silence with identical, emotionless expressions, which is when I realized for the first time that the laughter normally visible in Anna's eyes was actually the gleam of insanity. It was she who finally spoke. It's nothing, dear. Just rats or water in the pipes. This is an old house. Go back to work. Anna's usual merry smile, which had only faltered for a moment, returned to her face, and Emily Linus now looked as stiff as a totem pole. I did as I was told, but there was something unsettling about what had just occurred. The more I thought about the sounds and the sisters' reactions, when they knew I'd heard them, the more I felt there was something wrong going on. More wrong than just two eccentric women living in a filthy, decaying house. I worked Monday through Friday of the following week on both the first and second floors, but never heard those sounds again. I couldn't get them out of my mind, though. I never felt convinced by Anna's explanation of what it was. There was something too insistent, focused, and human about them. I decided that the next time I was working on the second floor and knew the sisters were busy elsewhere, I would sneak up to the third and look around quickly just to dispel my concerns. That day came on Saturday. There was a storage room at one end of the second floor that Anna wanted me to rearrange, which would take me several hours. 
After working a while, I ascertained both sisters were still on the first floor by going downstairs and asking if it was okay to get a drink of water from the kitchen, which I did from my cupped hands as I was afraid the smudged, foggy-looking glasses might be diseased. They were both occupied. Emily worked from home as a bookkeeper and was in her office doing just that. And Anna was in the drawing room, polishing her toenails and humming to herself. When I got back up to the second floor, I made some noise by pushing around boxes in the storage rooms so that the sisters would assume I had gotten back to work. I pulled my shoes off and tiptoed back down the hallway to the curving marble stairway leading up to the third floor. I had midweek casually asked Emily what was up there, and she told me it was just some additional bedrooms devoid of any furniture and an office, also now empty, that her late father had used. I remember that conversation well because of the way she kept staring at me after she answered the question. I got to the top of the stairs, and in under a minute, had checked the doors on the third floor. Unlike the ones in every room below, every door up here was locked. I was very disturbed by this. The situation reminded me of some B-grade horror movie in which a person is being held prisoner in the attic or basement of a house by some crazy person. I kept telling myself there was nothing like that going on here, and I was just letting my imagination run away with me. Then, I would look at some revolting corner of this crypt-like Victorian monstrosity which seemed to get darker and dirtier every day. Or look at Emily's lined, stark face, or Anna's strangely gleaming eyes, and I could again easily believe there was some terrible thing going on up on that third floor. I also, through seeing Anna on almost a daily basis, realized the bright smile she always wore was rigidly fixed onto her face, as though glued there. It was even present when I once ventured into a sitting room and found her napping in a chair, her teeth still gleaming bright from overstretched lips. If I reported my suspicions, though, and it turned out that it was nothing but some rats in an empty room, it would cause needless embarrassment for the sisters and would surely cost me my job. I needed to find a way to get into the locked upstairs room. On Wednesday of the following week, Anna assigned me some tasks to do on the second floor and informed me that she had a headache, so she would be lying down in her bedroom for a while, and that if I needed something, Emily would be working in her office on the first floor. It was now or never. Again removing my shoes, I padded up to the third floor and went to the room I thought the sounds came from. When I first heard them above me the previous week, I pressed my ear up against the door and then knocked gently. No sound came from the room. I decided I was being ridiculous and started to turn away when I heard a scraping inside. And then, a feral snarl that crescendoed into an unmistakable scream of a human voice. I once used my lamented library card to spring the lock on our basement door when I couldn't find the key, and that's what I was going to attempt with this one. I wedged it into the space by the doorknob 
and it worked back and forth and up and down, turning the knob this way and that until I heard a click. I grabbed the doorknob and then almost jumped a foot into the air when I heard Emily Linus yell from the other end of the hallway. Stop! I turned to see her hurrying toward me with a horrified expression on her face. When she reached the door, she shoved me away so hard that I tripped and fell. She then pulled a key ring from her pocket and relocked the door with shaking hands. When she turned to me again, she looked devastated. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean for you to fall like that, but you have no idea what... She turned to look at the door, and then back at me again. Her almost impossibly white face was a mask of desperation and anguish. By now, I'd gotten over my initial shock and stood back up. There's someone in there. I know for sure there is now. I heard them. You're keeping someone imprisoned in there. No, I swear to you, it's not what you think. There's nobody in there right now. Then why is it locked? Open the door and let me see. She looked resigned, and as though every last bit of energy suddenly drained out of her, she bowed her head and slid down to a sitting position against the wall to the side of the door. The only thing I'm afraid of is what will happen to you if you do go in there. I told you my father had an office up here, but that wasn't true. It was a laboratory, and it took up much of this floor, but I wasn't lying when I said it's empty. Right now, at this very moment, I swear to you that there is absolutely nothing in there. When there is, you can hear it, just like you did a little while ago. We sat at a table in the breakfast room, which like the rest of the house, was festooned with spiderwebs and wet, wilting boxes of junk and slime-encrusted pieces of this and that. There were ruffled floral curtains on the window that I could visualize having once been bright and cheerful, but which were now so encrusted with dirt I had to avert my eyes from them to not feel ill. Emily Linus poured us both a cup of tea a few minutes before, I'd watch her use a piece of steel wool to vigorously scrub the insides of the cups, but that still didn't eradicate the black, stained-in dirt around the rims. When she placed the tea in front of me on the table, I put my hands around the cup in a show of polite gratefulness, but couldn't bring myself to put my mouth on it. Emily saw that and smiled sadly. Would you believe just five short years ago, this entire house was as pure and beautiful as the ground surrounding it? Like your bedroom? The question slipped out before my mind can get a hold of my tongue. She looked at me sharply, then nodded with the same forlorn smile. Do owe you an explanation about... She looked around and made a sweeping gesture with her arm. All of this? I never meant for anyone to come here. Hiring someone was Anna's idea. She stared down at the table quietly for a while, then, with a resigned sigh, looked up at me. My father was a scientist, and a brilliant man. Quite visionary, actually. He had some theories, though, about things considered so far-fetched, things like the existence of other dimensions and parallel worlds that he soon became an object of ridicule 
and scorn in the scientific community. He became so rabidly unrelenting and fanatical in his demands that time and money be invested into researching these areas by the government facility he worked for that he eventually lost his job. Whispers that he was a madman got around and doors everywhere slammed in his face when applying for further work. He had a sum of money stashed away and used it to turn most of the third floor into a private lab where he could pursue his research. He became a recluse once he did. He was an unparalleled genius. During the ensuing years, he created things never before seen in heaven or on earth. He came running out of his lab one day, holding an object that looked like nothing more than an ordinary fountain pen. He called Anna and me into the parlor to watch as he clicked this pen-like object while aiming it at a vase. The vase levitated three feet into the air. Within a week, he was able to make this table we're sitting at now and the four chairs surrounding it rise up to the ceiling and hover there for a full minute before slowly descending back to the floor. Another time, he created this little box with wires and lights all over it that would make things disappear when placed inside it. First, small, inanimate things like stones or coins. Then living creatures he kept in his lab like mice and frogs. So you see, he truly was quite gifted and brilliant, perhaps more so than anyone else in the world. But then he began working on something that he said would vindicate him in the scientific community. He never said what it was, but he became obsessed and often would not leave the lab for days, even sleeping there. One day, there was a sound like the winds of hell, and every window, wall, and floor of the house, and every object contained within shook so hard, I thought the end of the world was upon us. Things crashed to the floor, even the light bulbs burst in their sockets. This went on for three horrifying minutes. Both Anna and I feared there had been an explosion in the lab, so we ran up there and called out to my father and banged on the door. There was no response. We were never allowed to enter the lab without his permission, but of course in this case, I pulled out my keys and fearing the worst, opened the door. And it was to a completely empty room. Every single thing. Every object, every counter, stool and tool, every living creature from my father himself to the mice, rats, rabbits and snakes he kept there for his experiments. Every notebook and scrap of paper, it was all gone. Not so much as a curl of dust remained in that room. Emily now pushed back from the table and stood up. You don't believe me. She was right. I already had my doubts when she started talking about her father's improbable inventions. But when she told me about the complete vanishment of the lab, I was sure she was making it all up in some desperate effort to keep me from telling anyone about the person imprisoned up there. She read these thoughts on my face. I guess I have no choice but to let you see for yourself. We need to hurry, though, before Anna wakes up from her nap. The last thing I wanted to do was to go up to some makeshift prison with someone I was now convinced was completely insane and probably dangerous. I needed to think fast and looked at her apologetically. It's just that it's such a fantastical tale. Please, continue. I promise to listen with more of an open mind. You'll listen with an open mind when you see for yourself that there is no one in that room. She took me back up to the third floor, warning me that, no matter what, 
I must not step foot into that room. With one hand, she grabbed my arm with the force of a vice to prevent me from doing just that, while unlocking and opening the door with the other. She then, standing behind me and grasping me by the shoulders, positioned me so that I could clearly see that the room was completely empty. She then quickly closed and locked the door again. But the sounds I heard, there was a human voice. Emily Linus looked toward the stairs at the end of the hall, then spoke in a whisper. Things disappear from that room, but sometimes they come back, just not in the same condition in which they left. What she told me next was so extraordinary that if she hadn't showed me one final thing as proof before I left that day, I would not have believed any of what she said, and would have just assumed that the entire story was only the delusional rantings of a deranged mind. She led me back downstairs, and out onto the beautiful grounds, and then over to the greenhouse. Before she began to speak again, she placed her hand against the outside of it, as though the life and beauty of the flowers and plants within breathed life into her through the glass. A week after the lab vanished, our pet dog, a regal-looking bloodhound, went into the room, and he too disappeared without a trace. I kept the door closed after that. Until, a week later, I heard his familiar bark coming from the room. Overjoyed at his return, I ran up there and threw open the door. It was him. I knew that unquestionably because he wore the bejeweled collar I'd once gifted him with, but he had three heads now, and the arms of a monkey sprouted from his back. This mutated monstrosity bolted towards me, so I slammed the door shut a moment before it leapt out of the room. For the next hour, as I sat outside the door weeping, I could hear all three dog heads howling and whining like a chorus of the damned in hell. Then it stopped, and when I dared to crack the door again, the creature was gone. A month later, our father returned. Anna was closest when we heard his muffled voice coming from behind the locked door, so she unlocked and ran into the room before I could stop her. I heard her scream just as I reached the door and saw an insectile, snake-tailed monstrosity speaking from my father's face and with his voice while it writhed on the floor in reptilian slime, coiling around Anna's legs. Both of them then vanished into thin air. She returned days later, and through the door, assured me that she was okay. And she was, at least, on the surface. When I cracked the door, I could see her body was not changed in any way, so I let her out of the room. Only to discover that whoever it was that returned was not Anna. Some cursed creature walking death or demon now crouched in the folds of Anna's flesh and proceeded to take over her life. I never opened that door again, no matter what I heard moving or speaking within. She concluded this bizarre tale by telling me about the house itself. Bit by bit, this home turned into what you see today. It began to slowly die day by day, room by room, becoming filled with the darkness, dirt, and putridity that had taken over Anna. She would touch something, and it would darken, or fade. Ever since her return, some force from that room seemed to flow through her hands and press down onto the house. 
For some reason, though, she had no power or control over the grounds, or anything beyond them. Her suffocating influence was confined to the house by whatever forces had her in their grasp. Outside of that, such as her teaching job, she carried on the charade of being a normal person. Over time, I came to realize, for reasons I know not, that flowers and plants dulled the fires of her destruction. At least, outdoors and within my own room, which is the only place in the house I can counterbalance what she does. I grow them in the greenhouse to ensure I have flowers to place there year-round. Come with me back to the house now. I'm going to pay you for the week you just worked. You shouldn't ever come back here. It's not safe. As we return to the Victorian, still stately and impressive looking from the outside, I realized the only thing I knew for sure was true, because I did see it with my own eyes, was that no one was locked in the room on the third floor. Everything else she told me, though, was too incredible to be believed. I felt sad for this woman, who I now assumed was harmless, but completely insane, until I remembered one thing she said that nagged at me with a hook of truth. It was about the inside of the house slowly dying. Even in the short time I'd worked there, it did appear to get darker and more hideous every time I looked at something again. The once cheerful curtains in the breakfast room were filthy the first time I saw them. But when I looked at them again today, while in that room with Emily, I saw they'd become so weighted down with additional dirt and grease in the few short days since seeing them last that the curtain rod sagged in the middle. Spiders' webs that festooned the corners of a bedroom on the first floor had, in less than a week, grown and spread by many feet, now dangling like sheets of lace from the ceiling, far faster than any spiders could possibly have spun them. Once back in the house, Emily started counting out the money to give me from a pretty madras purse. She looked pale and sad. I thought of something that would tell me if there was at least some crumbs of truth to her, any of her story, or if she truly was along with the always strangely smiling Anna, insane. Miss Linus, why didn't you ever leave this place? Why don't you leave it now? She looked at me for a long time, and I could tell she was struggling with something within her own mind, and debating with herself whether or not to tell me. She then looked resolute and turned away. I can't leave. That's all. I walked over to her and gently placed a hand on her shoulder. Tell me. She turned back to me, starker and sadder than I've ever seen a human being look. I told you that things disappear from that room, but sometimes come back, just not the way they left. I didn't know that at first. So I, too, once walked into that room. Some of the things my father kept in the lab before it vanished were tankfuls of bugs that he used for his experiments. He favored grasshoppers. Green grasshoppers. Emily Linus always wore loose, long-sleeved, high-necked dresses that had come down below her knees. She stepped back to put some distance between us, and starting at the neck, began to unbutton the one she was wearing now until the entire front of her body was exposed. As soon as I saw her unhinged green torso, 
and six spindly legs folded tightly across it. I knew that every word she told me that day was true. When Emily Linus closed the front door behind me that day, when I left that house for the last time, I knew then that I would never return there. I, in fact, avoided even passing by it for the remaining four years I lived in that town before I married and moved away. Today, I return to visit old friends after being gone for almost ten years. The three-story Victorian was gone. I heard it had one day simply collapsed like an imploding star. Rotted timbers and termites were the general consensus in town. No one knew what happened to the two sisters who had lived there. Their bodies were never found in the debris. The two acres of property and the structures that still remained standing fell to some distant cousin. When I went by there, whatever was left of the fallen house had already been carted away, and there was a for sale sign up. I walked across the grounds, which had been long untended and were now in a state of wild, weedy dilapidation. The greenhouse was still there, and I could see the blackened, wilted remains of the plants and flowers that had once flourished within. There were cracks radiating out across the glass on all sides of it, but outside, on one wall, a scraggly, thorny vine scrambled up to its roof. It bore a single lovely yellow rose. A grasshopper clung to it as it waved a little in the breeze. It takes a lot of determination and dedication to become a medical doctor. Years of education and training are required. And in this tale, shared with us by author Gabrielle E. Josephson, we meet a man about to enter medical school. He just needs to figure out what type of doctor he wants to be. Performing this tale is Dan Zapula. So study hard and do your lab work especially the ones which are hands-on. Jason Woods, anesthesiologist. No, that doesn't sound right. Too boring, I think. I stewed in a too-small bathtub filled with tepid water. I laid on my stomach with my feet crossed up over the faucet like a hung fish. My right arm was propped uncomfortably on the side of the tub, pressed against the sliding glass door. I rested my head on the other to keep it above the water, eyes closed and mind hazy. My whole body was coming down from an all-over numbness. I barely had enough sensation to move. 
I was only keeping conscious by listening to the rhythmic tapping of my fingers on the side of the tub. My fingers fell in time with my heartbeat, all four together in a dull thump rather than a cascade of four notes. I frowned. The clotted movements of my fingers weren't surprising given the circumstances, but it still frustrated me that they were falling short of standard. I cracked an eye open. The lights were off, but a handful of candles had been lit and placed around the room. Not sure when I'd managed that. Not sure how I'd managed to run a bath for myself either. The smell of the vanilla candles was so thick in the air, I felt like it coated the inside of my lungs with wax. I tried to focus on my fingers, and only my fingers, channeling my returning mental clarity into holding them still in the air. I imagined the tendons in my arm tensing and tugging on the bases of my knuckles, like the articulations of a handmade doll. I watched my fingers lift and extend, slightly sore but responding much better. I flexed them out as far as they would go, then clenched them into a fist. The pressure sent a bolt of stinging pain up to my shoulder and my whole hand went numb. I hissed. The anesthetics were wearing off. I wondered how I might describe this feeling to a patient someday how I would help them move forward with their recovery in a similar situation. Jason Woods, physiotherapist? Absolutely not. That's a nurse's job. Besides, I'm not the bedside companion type. I willed my fingers to move again, this time just holding them up, stress testing them. The heel of my hand rested against the bathtub and my fingers floated in the air like the legs of a tarantula slowly testing the ground and the air for the vibrations of prey. I smiled fondly. The first time I ever saw a tarantula in person was at a pet store when I was young, its eight beady eyes staring at me through its glass tank, long hairy legs probing and pressing at the cold surface like it was reaching out for me. I was mesmerized by the glint of black fangs under its mandibles. I'd asked the employee why it was staring at me. The employee told me that it was because the tarantula was hungry. I'd begged and begged my parents to buy me one for weeks, but they never relented. No way in hell that they'd let me keep a pet that required live food in the house. I'd never grown out of my fascination, though. It was my amazement with the tarantula's ability to produce a neurotoxin in its own body that led me to pursue medicine. I wanted to discover if the human body was capable of producing substances that could be used to kill disease or alter its own chemistry. But after pouring years of time and thousands of dollars into medical schooling, my area of interest shifted towards the more practical aspects. I slowly clasped my hand into a fist and then extended my fingers. The pain was getting duller and duller with each repetition. Perfect. I started to tap my fingers on the side of the tub. This time, they fell in perfect rhythm. Pinky, ring, middle, and index. 
Four drum beats, one right after the other in perfect time. Pride welled in my chest. I'd truly outdone myself. Hot pink acrylic nails accentuated the low thump of my finger pads with an electric clack as they collided with the side of the bathtub. They were just as striking in person as they had been online, contrasting beautifully with the chocolatey dark skin of the hand they adorned. For the life of me, I couldn't remember what the name on the profile had been. It didn't matter now. I'd gotten what I'd needed from her. Jason Woods. Surgeon. Now that had a nice ring to it. It takes years of experience for a doctor to be able to reattach a severed limb. The intricacies of grafting nerves and reconnecting veins are difficult for even the most experienced surgeons to grasp. A successful transplantation takes a village. Yet I'd managed to perform one by myself. By God, I must be the greatest surgeon to have ever held a scalpel. I fantasized about flaunting my achievement to my peers and professors. To doctors three times my age and experience who couldn't even come close to my inborn talents. My dedication to the craft. I hadn't even started my residency yet. I rolled to my back and raised my new arm in front of me. I had severed it about two inches from the elbow so I wouldn't lose any mobility. There was an angry red ring where my pale skin met the dark of my new arm. I felt an icy ache deep in my bones as the pins I'd inserted strained at the shifting gravity. Droplets of blood from in between the sutures glinted like tiny black eyes in the candlelight. I decided that it was probably best to bandage it for now. It would be a damned shame if I ended up with an infection that would require another amputation. I unplugged the drain and tried to push myself up onto my feet. But the second I put pressure on my right arm, it roared with pain. I collapsed back into the tub with a shriek, clutching my new arm close to my chest and scrunching up into a fetal position. I cradled my arm until it no longer felt like it had just been basted with its own boiling fat. Painkillers, I said, my tongue pulling the thought directly from my brain. I swallowed hard and very carefully stood and stepped out of the tub, making sure to lean all my weight on my left arm this time. Thin streaks of blood were trailing down my right and dripping onto the floor. I grabbed a towel off the hanging rack next to the tub and didn't bother drying off. I just haphazardly wrapped it around the bleeding sutures and walked out of the bathroom. I had a first aid kit under the kitchen sink. I could worry about cleanup after I got my arm properly dressed. I shuffled through the dark hallway into the living room. The only light that was left on was a table lamp next to a verdant terrarium. A fat Mexican red knee tarantula sat proudly on the centerpiece branch of its tank, its muscular legs propped up on a round object coated in silver webbing. I smiled warmly and approached the tank. Velvet was clearly engrossed in her meal, but I couldn't quite make out what exactly she was eating. 
Her fangs worked eagerly into the web-covered object that almost looked like a ping-pong ball. As Velvet's fangs squeezed, a cloudy slime oozed from the ball as it deflated. I caught a glimpse of a lifeless brown iris through the silk. Iris, that was her name. Dating app Iris, drinks in a private booth Iris, oh negative Iris. Perfectly manicured Iris, whose arms sorely needed tending to. I gauzed and bandaged Iris's arm at the kitchen table, securing the dressings with tensor bandage clips, taking extra care in disinfecting where her skin was sewn to my own. I'd need to be on light duty for a while, even though my hand mobility was much better than expected. Before that, though, there was one last matter to tend to. There was still the matter of Iris. What was left of her, anyway? I suppose light duty would have to wait. As I am now, I know I won't be able to practice in the light of day despite my evident talent. The bandages concealed my work of genius for now, but I know my pride won't allow me to hide it forever. I have no doubts that my research will go to good use eventually, likely after I'm dead and gone. William Beaumont comes to mind. On the bright side, I still had one last career option to explore before making my final decision. One last consideration to be etched onto the annals of medical history forever. Jason Woods, Mortician. I'll bet you've heard a lot about VR lately. Virtual reality is rather, uh, let's say, meta these days. Don your headsets and step into a 3D world of fun, right? But in this tale, shared with us by author M.J. Pack, we meet a woman who worked for a company specializing in bleeding-edge VR tech. If only they knew what kind of virtual world they were conjuring. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Sarah Thomas, Nicole Goodnight, Mary Murphy, Lindsay Russo, Atticus Jackson, and Jesse Cornett. So reach out. You can almost touch them, can't you? And if you do, it will be quite the reunion. I can't tell you the name of the company where I work, or where we're located, or even my official title. All I can tell you is that we made one of the worst mistakes a group of people possibly could. We were put in a position of power, and we abused it so horribly that if there is an afterlife, which I truly doubt, none of us have even a sliver of hope to end up there. At least, not the good one. The experiment, unfortunately, was my idea. 
With the growing advances in virtual reality, I was given the opportunity to create a passion project. VR was already used for games, physical therapy, connecting with others in the system. What else could I envision it being used for? I ended up combining all three functions after remembering an older woman who used to sit at the park when I was a kid. She'd camp out on the bench near the playground and watch us all play, occasionally feeding the squirrels or the birds without much enthusiasm. One day, when I was about nine years old, I ventured over to her to ask her why she was there if she didn't have any kids. Obviously, that was a cruel thing to ask, but I was a brash young nine-year-old and I had far more curiosity than tact. She smiled thinly at me setting her brown paper bag of birdseed next to her on the bench. I do have a kid. He's just not here right now. Well, where is he? She sighed, staring off into the distance, tears swelling up in her eyes. And I knew I'd said something wrong. Uh, I don't really know. He's just not here right now. I asked my mom about it after. Her face went sort of white, and I had the feeling if she'd been there to hear me ask the question, she would have smacked me in the mouth. She probably lost her son, honey. Like in a store? My mom pinched the bridge of her nose between her thumb and forefinger and sighed deeply. (sighs) No, hon, not in a store. Well, then how did she leave? For God's sake, Molly, her son died. How can you be so dense? She slammed her hands on the kitchen table, pushed herself away from it, and left me there, stunned, speechless. I'd always been somewhat of a difficult child, but my mother never spoke to me this way. As an adult, I now realize why she reacted the way she did. It was a complicated question, and I was a dumb kid and she probably could only think of the immeasurable pain I had caused this poor woman at the park after the unthinkable suffering she'd already been through. And maybe, possibly, she was wondering what it would be like to lose me too and end up on that park bench feeding the birds, watching all the other children play in ways that her own child never could again. That story stuck with me. I've been fortunate enough not to lose anyone in my life. Not yet, anyway. By the grace of a god I don't believe in, my aunts and uncles are alive, my parents are alive, my grandparents are even still hanging on. In my 35 years, I have never even attended a single funeral. So the idea of death, losing someone forever, it's always hung over me. Maybe it's because I wish I could go back to that park and tell that old woman I'm sorry, but after that day, I never saw her on the bench again. So, I sat down with my team. We planned out an extensive virtual reality program with multiple environments. A field of flowers, a day at the beach, and at my own insistence, a park with a playground. I was aiming for this project to focus exclusively on parents who had lost children, partly because of that old lady, but also because adult interaction is far more complicated and I wasn't ready to take that on yet. Eventually, that was my goal, to work towards widowed spouses or adult siblings. But first, children had to be the focus. We gathered our information from volunteer subjects. They were required to do something that 
I knew must be painful, but necessary, and gather photographs and videos of their deceased children. Anything that we could use to rebuild them in the system, to make them as realistic as possible. Between me and my assistants Trevor and Edward, we must have accumulated over 200 hours of media of kids that no longer existed. It was hard to see. But to be truthful, I didn't actually watch most of it. I just fed it into the software, like numbers into a spreadsheet. Our first test subject was Mary, single mother, age 33. She had lost her daughter at age 7. Not in a store, but to a car accident. And her marriage had dissolved in the wake of their grief. We had several other options for test subjects, but Mary felt right because I thought this experiment would help her the most. When she arrived for her session, I could tell she was nervous. I did my best to assure her that while this was only a trial version of the software, we had put our best efforts into it, and her experience would help us fine-tune the performance until we could get it just right. She would have an hour to experience this virtual reality session with her daughter. I remember holding her hands, looking into her sad brown eyes, and telling her that if our calculations were as I thought they were, she would get to see her daughter again, however imperfectly. I regret that even more than what I asked the old lady in the park. After a brief questionnaire, Trevor led her into the VR chamber. It's a large white room with plenty of room to move around. No furniture, just wide open space to allow the subjects to explore their environment. When they're about to reach the edge of the room, a slight vibration hits their helmet to let them know they're almost out of range. Did I not mention the helmet? I'm sorry, it's still hard to think about. Trevor fit Mary with the helmet, a much larger VR headset than most of you are familiar with. It's nearly the size of an astronaut's helmet, and it blocks out all light and sounds so that the program can be fully immersive. Again, my idea. My stupid, short-sighted idea. After making sure she was comfortable, Trevor left the chamber and joined Edward and me in the control room. In this room, we had a simple keyboard with a large number of monitors so we could see what the subject was seeing at every feasible angle. For safety, of course. Once the program began, we didn't intend to control much, just any glitches that might occur or any restarts that may be needed. And, of course, a kill switch in case things became too much. I also made sure to fit the helmet itself with a kill switch, a small button on the right temple that the subject could press if they were feeling overwhelmed or wanted out. Unfortunately, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Trevor, Edward, and I sat at the control panel. Mary stood in the center of the white chamber, looking around expectantly, her face hidden behind this huge helmet. She couldn't wait for the program to begin. Truth be told, I couldn't either. Before me, on the screen, was a blinking green button that read Start. My heart seemed to beat in time with each blink. I took a deep breath. Here we go, boys. I clicked the mouse, hitting the start button. The screens suddenly switched on, displaying a huge field of beautiful pink tulips. 
something like you'd see in the Netherlands. The sky was an almost unnatural shade of blue, and I immediately made a note on my notepad, writing that the saturation of colors needed to be toned down. The clouds were huge and white and puffy, and though those didn't look quite right either, I didn't note that. Clouds didn't always look totally normal, and almost looked better when they didn't. In the corner of the screen, a timer counted down from one hour. Mary's body looked around the chamber. Mary's avatar looked around the field of flowers. And then, out of the field, a little girl came running. I recognized her right away as Mary's daughter, Elaine, a little girl of seven with short blondish hair and big brown eyes. She was smiling so wide, and as soon as Mary saw her, she clapped both hands to her mouth. Hi, Mommy. Elaine's avatar threw her arms out for a hug. Mary stared at her. She crouched down slowly and put her arms out, too. The one part I had regretted in the moment was that we couldn't program in any sort of physical touch. But I had warned her about this, that any kind of physical interaction would have to be imagined. It didn't seem to matter. Mary mimed a hug, and Elaine's avatar embraced hers warmly. Mary was shaking. I could see it in her arms, her legs. Tears stung my eyes, but I blinked them away, hoping that my assistants couldn't see. Hi, baby. Mary sank further down onto her knees. I'll admit, the VR was almost unnervingly real compared to the few videos and photos I'd seen of Elaine. There was no uncanny valley here. From what we could see on the screen, Mary may as well have been seeing her dead daughter for the first time in four years. Elaine's avatar smiled and pulled back from the hug. There was the first disconnect I saw. She pulled back, but Mary was still embracing her because she couldn't feel the withdrawal. But it didn't last long as she looked up at her daughter's avatar, still smiling, tears streaming down her neck, even with the helmet stopping most of them at her cheeks. I miss you. Trevor put a hand on my shoulder. We did it. I shushed him. Shh, not yet. Mary tried to speak, (laughs) sobbed again, then paused and composed herself. She tried to wipe her tears, only to be stopped by the helmet, which I found an unbearably sad thing to witness. But she didn't let it break her. I missed you too, Ellie. So, so much. You'll never know how much. Don't cry, Mommy. Elaine's avatar spun around in a circle. Come play with me. I don't want to share what happened in the next hour, because I don't feel that's my place. All I'll say is that Mary and Elaine's avatar made up for lost time. The vibration in the helmet did a fairly good job of stopping her before she reached the edge, though Mary did still bump into it a few times. It didn't take her long to recognize the space, though, and the session seemed to be going remarkably well. I made dutiful notes while Edward made minor adjustments to the system whenever we noticed a small flicker or glitch of unreality. As the hour came to a close, I did what I had been dreading most, to tell Mary the program was almost over. I hit a button to speak through the speaker in her helmet. Mary, your session is almost over. I'm sorry, but it's time to say goodbye. 
Mary, who had been sitting on the white floor, cradling a daughter who wasn't really there, looked up frantically. No, please, I need more time. Please, I need more time. Before I could say anything else, Elaine's avatar suddenly stood up. You can't leave, Mommy. Her brown eyes began to well up with virtual tears. If you leave, I'll die all over again. (laughs) Mary let out a broken sob, and my breath caught in my throat. I released the microphone button. What the fuck? I looked to Edward and Trevor, slightly panicked. She shouldn't be saying that. Why would she say that? Edward looked away from me. Trevor swallowed, then looked me straight in the eyes. I programmed it in. If this is something we can monetize, we need the parents to keep coming back. What the fuck do you mean, monetize? What do you mean, keep coming back? I reached for the microphone button, but Trevor stopped me. The company wants to turn this into a business, Molly. If they get closure on the first session, they won't be repeat customers. We need them to want to come back. I never agree to this. Yeah, you weren't in those meetings. In the chamber, Mary was hugging desperately at the air. No, baby, I won't leave. Don't worry, I won't leave. I don't want to die again, Mommy. (laughs) Now they were both crying. Get her out of there! I reached for another button, and when Trevor tried to stop me again, I shoved him away with a surprising amount of strength. I hit the kill switch. Nothing happened. What the fuck? Did you program this in too? I hit the kill switch over and over again. The screens stayed on. In the chamber, Mary was hugging the air, but on the screens, she was hugging Elaine, who looked like she'd never let go. No, no, the kill switch should still work. He got up from the floor and started hammering the same button I'd been hitting. I'll never leave. I won't leave. I'll never leave. (laughs) Mary began sobbing, and suddenly all the screens went dark. It's been three days now. The doors of the chamber, for some reason, won't unlock. Mary won't take off the helmet. In fact... She won't do anything. She hasn't asked for food or water or anything. She's been relieving herself anywhere she can in the room, and she's running out of spots. But without food or water, she won't necessarily need them anymore. She doesn't even seem to be interacting with the Avatar much either. Though if she were, we couldn't see it. We can't get the screens back on. (laughs) She just laughs weakly once in a while, or moves her hands just a little bit. Sometimes she murmurs, but I can't make out what she's saying. We've called in higher-ups to look at the software, the power supply, but no one has been of any help. I've begged for them to call for someone to open the doors, but I think they're afraid of legal repercussion, since apparently the releases Mary signed didn't actually go anywhere or mean anything. It was just something Trevor drew up on the fly to look official. I've been told to go home, that there's nothing I can do, but I feel like I have to watch and hope that Elaine's avatar will let go of its hold on her. 
I've been running every script I can think of to undo what Trevor had done, but the program won't let itself be changed. Maybe that's the cost of playing God, and if that's the case, then I, just like God, have to watch what I have wrought on the innocent. At least, I suppose, she didn't choose the park. Anthropomorphize. That's the fancy way to describe the common thing people do when they ascribe human traits to inanimate objects. Teddy bears, cars, volleyballs. We talk to them and treat them lovingly. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we meet a janitor who discovers a device which should be tossed into the scrap heap. If only it didn't seem to so desperately need saving. I join Jeff Clement and Kelly Bear in performing this tale. So if you think something needs help, listen closely. You just might hear the voice in the compactor. the fuck? The old man swung his mop around and glared at the empty room. No one should be here at this hour, and yet he was certain he'd heard a frail voice somewhere behind him. But there was no one there, only the rusty trash compactor and the boxes of parts slated to feed it. A dollop of greasy water fell from the mop and congealed on the floor. He wiped it back into the mop and plunged the head into the bucket. He waited for a moment longer, straining his ears, before turning around to continue his work. Then, he heard the voice again. Help me! This time, when he turned, he caught the faintest of movements in the mouth of the compactor. It was a hexopuller, a six-armed contraption made to expand and grip around any object. They were programmed with very basic computing capacity that analyzed the heft and shape of the objects and would move to a position where its weight was most evenly distributed, at which point it would produce a carrying handle from its back. The handle could be used by human hands or factory hooks, whichever was most logical for the job. This hexopuller was hanging precariously by a single arm. It was clear, by the sparks flying from some of its broken limbs, that it had reached the end of its life cycle. And yet, the little hexopuller held onto the ledge as though clinging to life. Logic dictated that it was only following its programming, that it was gripping the compactor because that's what hexopullers do. They grab things, and that there was nothing more to it. But hexopullers couldn't speak at least not beyond a few pre-programmed voice responses. Help me. No fucking way. You're just a goddamn machine. This ain't happening. 
One of its broken limbs rose into the air and twitched weakly, almost pleadingly. He tried his hardest to ignore the signs of sentience. It was just a machine. Machines don't think. Machines couldn't feel. It was one of dozens that went into the compactor every month. He wasn't risking his job for a piece of scrap metal. Please. It sounded so sad, so pathetic. A kindling of sympathy threatened to ignite. He hurried out of the room, huffing as he did. And yet, as he continued to mop, all he could think about was the damned machine and its pitiful little cries for help. He found himself circling back to the hallway leading to the compactor room, ears trained, almost hoping to hear the little cries again over the clings and clangs of the factory floor. An hour later, he found an excuse to return to that room with a box of old screws and miscellaneous trinkets for the trash. He lied about his intentions even to himself, refusing to admit any form of interest or attachment to the hexopuller. He approached the mouth of the compactor with caution. Sure enough, there clung the little hexopuller, barely able to maintain its hold, its grip weakening as hydraulic liquid trickled out of it. It emitted pitiful, alarmed squeaks, while the bulbous red sensor on its back frantically scanned the compactor walls for a way out. The old man sighed and quickened his pace. All right, all right, I'll help you. Don't bite. It couldn't, even if it wanted to. Hexopullers don't have mouths. The old man reached in carefully and plucked it by its belly. He didn't even need to push the object release valve. It let go on its own, as though it knew he was there to help. He sighed and placed it on his cart, and its legs, both the broken and the single functioning one, curled inwards like a cat. The old man couldn't help but detect subtle gratitude and relief in its relaxed posture. I'm calling you Muffins. Cause that's what I had for breakfast today. Muffins squeaked. The company would never let him leave with muffins. Not without a costly fine, not without being fired. He knew the metal detector would stop him before he even reached the door. But if this small creature could hold on to life even though there was visibly no hope for escape, well, he'd just have to show the same amount of faith that everything would turn out all right. He would never know the voice he'd heard had come from deeper inside the compactor. That the last operator had fallen in, and that she was still alive, but too weak to call out for help again when he walked away with muffins. She would not survive the night. In our final tale, we meet a cop who gets told of some shady stuff happening at the local cosmetic surgery clinic. Probably just some patients unhappy with their nose job or boob lift, right? But in this tale, 
shared with us by author Casey Banks. The skeptical cop changes his tune when a bizarre discovery forces him deep into investigating what's going on. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Ellie Hirschman, Jesse Cornett, Wafia White, Nicole Doolin, and Peter Lewis. So if you feel the need to enhance your looks with surgery, best do a lot of research on which clinic to use. You'll learn much from The Beauty Beat. I do things by the book. That's why I'm a good cop. I don't fix parking tickets. I don't falsify criminal reports. I don't even use my sirens to cut through evening traffic when I'm late getting home to dinner. Hannah understands this. That's why she married me. I don't bend the rules for friends or family. So there was no way I was going to do it for my neighbor, Larry. He came out of his house one Saturday afternoon while I was trimming the front hedge. I nodded along while he small-talked about rising gas prices, working up the nerve to say what he really wanted. It didn't take long. I think Vicky's doctor is a crook. He shoved at the bridge of his glasses. They were slipping down his nose because he was sweating like it was the middle of August, despite it being a cool, breezy afternoon in May. She went to get some work done. Nothing major, just a touch-up. But she had a serious allergic reaction. When he saw my confusion, he gestured to his face. It was really bad. She's better now, but still kind of swollen. I understood. Larry was married to Victoria James, Channel 10's health and beauty specialist. She wasn't big time... Channel 10 was only the local news station, but she had her own 30-minute segment every week, so she was well-known by the locals. Hannah tuned in every once in a while, watching the demonstrations of seaweed wraps and coffee cleanses. People would probably be upset if it got out that their health guru had cosmetic surgery. Larry pushed his glasses back on his nose again, and I wondered, not for the first time, how a balding, slightly buck-toothed guy in wire-rimmed glasses convinced a woman as beautiful as Victoria James to marry him. That doctor at the Mayor Clinic ought to be arrested for what he put Vicky through. His name is Richard Tejas. I shook my head. I'm sorry, but I don't think there's much I can do. Medical malpractice is hard to prove. You need a lot of evidence and expert opinions. Criminal malpractice is damn near impossible to charge. Your best bet is hiring a lawyer. Maybe if the doctor knows you're serious about taking him to court, he'll offer a refund and extra cash for pain and suffering. It wasn't going to happen. No way would a woman with her own health and beauty show risk exposure through a lawsuit over something like this. I figured this would be the last I'd hear of Dr. Tejas and the Mayor Clinic. I was wrong. The woman had been dead for 12 hours before anyone found her. She'd been discovered slumped against a dumpster in an alley behind a seafood restaurant. 
A busboy tripped over her while taking out the trash. He vomited all over his bags of fish guts and then screamed so loud and long the on-scene medics diagnosed mild damage to his vocal cords. Harrison Miller was on duty that night. He's not homicide, but he was the only plainclothed working when the officers at the scene called in for a detective. The dead woman's name was Joan Stanton, and she had been strangled. The object used, a long strip of plastic, was still around her neck when her body was found. She worked as a receptionist, lived alone, had no partner. I talked to Harrison the next morning after I got assigned the case. He looked exhausted, like he'd barely slept. He handed me the paper file. I grabbed him before he could hurry away and avoid talking to me. It's all in the report. He rubbed at the lines of fatigue under his eyes. Uh-huh. Then why don't you tell me what's not in the report? His expression didn't change, but he clutched his white coffee mug like he was gripping a lifeline. The thing around her neck, it wasn't a strip of plastic. I wrote that because I just couldn't write down what it really was. What was it? Harrison cleared his throat, visibly swallowed. <clears throat> it was her tongue. I know that's impossible, all right? That's why I didn't write it. But that's what it was. She'd been pushed part way between the dumpster and the wall and was sort of slumped over. At first, I couldn't tell what it was. It was... Gray and fleshy. It looked like an octopus leg had been wrapped around her neck. But then I noticed that her mouth was open, and the long, fleshy thing was pushing out from between her lips. Thought it had to be a sick joke from someone in the restaurant. Like they shoved a piece of calamari into her mouth when they found her. We pulled her out, and in the floodlights, you could see it clearly. The whole thing was her tongue. I watched the EMTs unwrap it from her neck. Can you imagine living like that? I know people come in all different shapes and sizes, but I've never heard of a person having a giraffe tongue. Could be a birth defect? Maybe. I don't know. The whole thing gives me the willies. That afternoon, I went to see the body myself. The medical examiner made me put on two sets of gloves, a pair of blue nitrile and then a thicker insulated glove on top that went all the way to my elbows. I usually brush off overly fussy morgue rules, but not when the medical examiner on duty was my wife. Hannah handed me an N95 mask, ignoring my grimace. The sooner you're properly suited up, the sooner I can show you Miss Stanton. I've never seen anything like it before. Tony called me in because he's busy fending off reporters and trying to get the CDC and the EPA down here. 
Hannah was technically only an associate medical technician, but she had a boss who was smart enough to recognize her skill at forensic examination. Hannah was outfitted in the same gloves and mask, but she also wore laboratory goggles and a white plastic cap over her brown hair. You look like you're geared up to handle raw sewage. I followed her to the refrigerated cabinets along the back wall. She stopped in front of a metal cabinet near the end and used both hands to pull the handle, sliding out the gurney. Despite what Harrison told me, I expected to see the same thing I'd seen dozens of times. A lifeless body, an object that used to be a man or woman that was now a husk. I'd seen bodies that were old, young, tall, short, with bullet holes or completely intact, but all of them human. When I looked down at the tray that held Joan Stanton's remains, what I saw there was not something I would have ever called human. It looked like a deflated balloon costume, as if someone made a human suit and left it in an unzipped heap. On the tray lay mounds of rubbery flesh in the shape of a dark-haired woman. Hannah took one of my gloved hands in hers and guided my finger to what appeared to be an arm. I pressed gently, and the flesh gave too easily, pushing in like overripe fruit. I quickly pulled my hand away. What the hell happened to her? Hannah stared down at the body and shook her head. That's what we're trying to figure out. When the body came in, it was already in an advanced stage of skeletal and muscular atrophy. She still got all her bones in there. They just sort of shrunk. Her muscles have completely dissolved. She pulled a pen from a lab coat pocket and used it to push under the head. Joan Stanton's face looked like an empty Halloween mask with a disturbing amount of detail. I stared at her eyelashes in fascinated horror, imagining the lids lifting away from the flattened cheeks, her eyes bulging out of her ruined face. Hannah carefully tilted the head, and I saw the elongated strip between her lips. The part coming out of her mouth was still pink, and looked fairly normal, but then it bled out into a gray color an inch past her chin. Her tongue was piled in a small mound beside her head. Just look at this. Her tone could have been awe or disgust, but with her mask in place, I couldn't tell. We thought for sure it had to be some kind of unknown semithoid isopod. You know, the parasite that attaches itself to a fish and replaces its tongue? But this one would have to be gigantic and attracted to humans. Except, it's not a parasite. It's her tongue. Our current theory is it's a tumor or a mutation from toxic chemical exposure, which would explain the rapid internal decomposition. You actually shouldn't stand near her for too long. I took a step back. Like the body is radioactive? You think she was in an industrial accident or exposed to a biohazard? 
That would explain how a human woman could end up looking like a heap of rubber and hair. Hannah shrugged. Could be. Like I said, we're trying to get the EPA and other health agencies down here ASAP. Although, I don't see how Miss Stanton got exposed to extreme levels of biohazard waste as a secretary at the Mayor Clinic. The Mayor Clinic. It hadn't clicked the first time I'd skimmed the file. The cosmetic surgery place my neighbor Larry had been complaining about. I called the clinic, listening to their recorded message offer cosmetic injections, abdominoplasty, rhinoplasty, and breast augmentation in a pleasant, soothing female voice. The line picked up, and I spent the next five minutes trying to get the lady on the other end to let me speak to the person in charge. She had a thick accent that sounded European, and she mumbled. As I argued with her, I imagined a bored blonde woman, barely out of her teens, wearing too much eyeshadow, picking at her fingernail polish. Eventually, I worked out that several doctors owned the clinic and were in charge. One of which was Dr. Richard Tejas. Dr. Tejas was the only one in today and was currently with a patient. I arranged to go to the Mayor Clinic and speak with the doctor later on in the day. And I'd pushed the cabinet back in and gone to one of the large basin sinks to take off her gloves and wash her hands. Snagging her from behind, I tugged down her mask for a quick, unprofessional kiss goodbye and then headed out. I'd planned that morning to stop by the house for a late lunch with Hannah, but she was covering her boss's shift, and I'd lost my appetite after seeing Joan Stanton. I was headed home now for a different reason. There was enough time before my appointment to speak with Larry again. I wanted a better idea of what was going on at the clinic. I regretted brushing him off last week when he'd tried to tell me about it. Maybe the good doctors were storing an unusual amount or extremely dangerous types of medical waste for extra cash. Larry's wife could have gotten her allergic reaction from touching a contaminated countertop that hadn't been properly scrubbed down. I went over to the neighbors and knocked. After a moment of no response, I was just about to knock again when the door opened and Victoria stepped out. She had her purse over one shoulder and was pulling the door closed behind her when she noticed me. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't see you. I thought I heard knocking, but was in such a rush I was sure I imagined it. <laughs> Victoria chuckled, swiping a strand of hair out of her face. Her laughter matched her voice, clear and lovely, like someone who'd had vocal training, which was probably the case. I took a beat to collect myself. I loved Hannah. She was kind and smart, and we fit well together, and we were even talking about trying for kids soon. There was no denying that Victoria James was a knockout. She was wearing a pastel sweater and went for a wholesome girl-next-door look for her show, 
but it was like wrapping a gold bar in a paper bag. Her natural beauty shone through. Actually, not so natural. I mentally corrected. I just stopped by to talk to Larry about something he mentioned the other day. He's not here. He left for the airport this morning to go visit his parents. He's coming back next week. She pressed her lips together, eyebrows furrowed. Strangely enough, no lines appeared between her eyes or on her forehead. She was flawless, not even a hint of a wrinkle. It should have made her face look plastic or frozen, but it didn't. The effect was eerie. Is this about the fuss he was making about the Mayor Clinic? I told him it wasn't their fault. You've probably guessed I've had some surgery, but nothing extreme. I only do dermal fillers now. Dr. Tay has offered a new brand and I said yes. I tried it, had a bit of a reaction, went back and now it's all fixed. See, all puffiness gone. She lifted her face for inspection. She was right. Her face was smooth, completely unblemished. I had a wild urge to touch it, even lifting my hand halfway before I quickly brought it back down to my side. Victoria's skin glowed with vibrancy and health. She pulled a small, round plastic container from her pocket uncapped it and dipped a finger in before carefully dabbing at her lips. Gloss. My lips keep chapping. I think there was paprika or something in that new brand. Made my face all tingly. I tried a different brand and that's the one that worked. I've gotta go. I'm on my way to pick up some cosmetic samples to add to the goodie bags we hand out on the show. Tell Hannah to stop by and I'll give her some of the extras. She gave me a kiss on the cheek and a wink, then hurried to her car with a wave. I touched my cheek as I walked home. It felt tingly where she had kissed me, and something had been off about her wink. I couldn't pin down what it was when I tried to think back to it. Likely she was just being friendly, and I was reading too much into it. The Mayer Clinic was everything I expected. Stark white walls, minimalist black and white furniture, colorful throws and pillows artfully arranged, framed pictures of beautiful, smiling women arranged along the walls. The girl at the front desk barely looked up from her magazine when I walked in. She pointed at a half-open door to her left, then went back to reading. If she was the lady I'd talked to on the phone, I pretty much nailed the description down to the brightly colored fingernails. I walked to the open door, giving the door frame a polite rap before stepping inside. It was an office, smaller but more comfortable than the lobby. Whatever interior design firm they'd hired hadn't been let loose on this space. The room was made up of three walls and a window that looked out on a grassy area just outside the parking lot. 
The light outside was fading to a muted gold, the sunset highlighting the large willow tree and bench in the center of the grass. Probably a peaceful place to eat lunch. In the middle of the room was a desk, which contained a computer and a monitor. A man, the room's only occupant, sat on a couch near the door, looking through a stack of papers. He looked up and smiled, getting to his feet, hand outstretched. Detective, you're right on time. Promptness is a dying skill that should be much more valued these days. His handshake was firm and confident, and a little too moist. I'm Richard Tejas, and I'm more than happy to speak with you. The doctor brought to mind a human version of a praying mantis. He was tall, his length exaggerated by his tailored suit. He wore a head-to-toe black, from his charcoal tie to his shiny black shoes. He looked more like an undertaker than a doctor. Dr. Tejas walked to his desk, gesturing to the chair in front while he took a seat. Please sit down. When Lana told me of your request to speak about a former employee, I took the liberty of making some phone calls to verify you are who you say you are. It seems you're a homicide detective, which means Joan is dead. You believe she was murdered. He said it so matter-of-fact. Not exactly cold, but with a lack of feeling or sentiment that I found odd. I ignored the question. Are you saying you didn't know Miss Stanton was dead until after my call this afternoon? You don't sound surprised. The doctor placed his elbows on the desk and leaned forward, steepling his long fingers. I haven't seen Joan in over a month, but the way she was headed, no, I'm not surprised. I had to terminate her employment. I didn't know when I hired her, but she was a junkie. She was a good receptionist at first, but she must have started using more. It became obvious. After several warnings, she came to work so high she could barely walk, and I told her she was fired. If you're here, it means she overdosed, or her dealer or one of her junkie friends killed her. He rose from his desk. I'm sorry, but I really don't have much else to tell you. <clears throat> I made a non-committal noise and watched the doctor. He didn't make his way to the door and attempt to usher me out. Instead, he crossed the room to a pair of double shelves built into the wall. The top shelf held a row of five large glass jars with plastic lids. All of the jars were half-filled with colorful beads. Beneath the jars, on the shelf below, was a narrow terrarium that had a mounted heat lamp attached to the side, pointed inward at a miniature bog of wet moss, leaves, and mud. Dr. Tejas reached into his pocket and pulled out a small plastic bag filled with squirming somethings. What are those? The doctor glanced over at me. If he was surprised I was still there, he didn't show it. 
He shook the bag out, letting the squirming things fall in the terrarium. Mealworms. It's Daisy's dinner time. I really should be giving her some fish, but grubs will do for now. He gently tapped at the glass, and an amphibian head emerged from a small pool of water. A mottled green turtle cautiously waddled its way up the mossy bank, its little legs picking up speed once it spotted the grubs. She's from Suriname. I imported her legally, if you're thinking otherwise. I'm not thinking anything. I said, wondering how far I could push him. He was getting defensive. If pushed enough, he could give something away. His little speech about Joan Stanton felt too neat. Too rehearsed. You know, I did hear a rumor recently about your clinic. I heard you're trying out a new brand of face fillers. Dermal fillers. This seemed a bit sharper than he intended. He turned and showed his teeth in what was supposed to be a smile. What of it? I shrugged casually. Nothing. I just heard that some people have had a bad reaction to it, like facial swelling and triggering allergic reactions. Look, I can see where you're going with this. Yes, I changed suppliers, but I'm not the only one. There's a supply shortage. Every single cosmetic surgeon in this country has been running off of fumes for months because of political posturing that won't end the trade embargoes. All of the products I use are FDA certified. I care about my patients, and I dare you to find another surgeon in this city, in this country, who is as good as me, who is as dedicated as me, who will work as hard as me to give my patients what they need. The smile had slipped from his face. The intensity in his expression was absolutely real. Movement out of the corner of my eye drew my attention back to the shelves. Daisy the turtle continued to stoically munch on the worms, but that wasn't what I'd seen. The movement had been higher. My gaze traveled up, and something in one of the jars of beads moved. As I watched, one of the beads shifted, and then another, and then another until I realized that the movement was the beads themselves. All of them, in all of the jars. The beads were moving. I rose from my seat and stepped closer. They weren't beads. They were beetles. Hundreds and hundreds of beetles crawling over one another. I think it's time for you to leave. Dr. Teyes had regained his composure. I'm done answering questions, and the clinic is closed. Also, I don't think it's a good idea for you to come back here unless you have a warrant. He held out a hand. I'd shaken it before, but I felt repulsion at the thought of doing so again. Everything inside of me was screaming to not let this man touch me. I nodded, moving to the door. 
Thank you for your time, Doctor. The receptionist was still at her desk reading her magazine. It looked like she had barely moved since I'd come in. Knowing it would be wasted on her, I gave her a courtesy nod of goodbye. That's when I noticed her fingers. She was holding the magazine in front of her, which showed off her bright blue nail polish, and also showed that the tip of each finger was mashed flat, as if the bone had been removed, leaving loose skin and a fingernail. She looked up at me and blinked, but she didn't blink normal. She did each eye separately, like a lizard. Dr. Tejas moved out of his office, and I quickly turned and left the building before either of them could speak. I stepped out of the Mayer Clinic, slightly disoriented by the lack of light. The sun had fully set while I was inside. Not even the glow of twilight remained. Spotting my car, I forced myself to keep walking. An itching between my shoulder blades made me look back. But the door of the clinic remained closed. I started my car drove out of the parking lot. Turned at the next corner and headed for a convenience store at the end of the street. I parked at the store, got out of the car, and hurried back the way I'd come. I jogged back to the clinic. Stopping on the sidewalk when the building came into view. Dr. Tejas and his secretary, probably the Lana he had mentioned, were still there. There were two cars in the parking lot, and the windows of the building glowed with light from inside. I couldn't see into the windows from where I was. I needed to get closer. I thought of leaving altogether, getting as far away from the Mayor Clinic as possible, going back to the station and writing up a report. But what would I say? I talked to a cosmetic surgeon and his secretary who has flat fingertips and blinks like a lizard, and then ran away because they were creeping me out. The chief would think I was crazy. My job was to investigate the death of Joan Stanton, and I had no doubt that Dr. Tejas or someone else in the Mayor Clinic was responsible for what happened to her. The Mayor Clinic had no exterior lights, and the one street light nearby was out. I crouched as low as I could manage and ran to the side of the building, trusting that the moonless night would obscure me from view. Skirting around the parking lot, I headed for the grassy area and hid behind the big willow tree. 
I could see Dr. Teyes's office through the glass. He hadn't closed the curtain. The light was off, and he wasn't in there, but he'd left the door open. Leaning out a bit from behind my cover, I could see the lit-up lobby. Dr. Teyes was talking to Lana, who was still seated at the reception desk. She nodded at something he said and reached inside a desk drawer, pulling out a bowl. Meanwhile, the doctor turned, heading straight for his office. I quickly ducked back, my heart thudding in my ears. I didn't think he saw me, but maybe I wasn't as well hidden as I thought. I risked a quick peek and saw that Dr. Teyes's back was to the window, his arm just coming down from a shelf, having grabbed something. He returned to the lobby and set one of his jars on the desk. He opened the lid and poured its contents into the bowl. My stomach rolled as Lana leaned forward and began shoveling beetles into her mouth. I was close enough that I could see the beetles crawling around the bowl. One of them had made it up the side and was balanced along the edge. Lifting its wings, it leapt into the air, zipping away from the desk. Lana's head jerked. Her tongue shot out of her mouth, a wad of pink flesh that extended three feet into the air, hitting the beetle dead center. The tongue snapped back into her mouth, and her attention returned to the bowl. As his receptionist feasted, Dr. Teyes inserted a syringe in her arm and drew her blood. He emptied the bright red liquid into a round container, and then reinserted the needle and began drawing more blood. The container was a larger version of one I'd seen earlier today. It looked just like the one that held Victoria's lip gloss. A high electronic ringing pierced the air, and I rocketed back, grabbing at my pocket. It was my phone. Why hadn't I remembered to silence my damn phone? I frantically dug through my pockets, my hand closing around my cell phone the exact same moment Dr. Teyes's office filled with light. I could see him leaning into his office, looking around. He'd realize the sound was from outside, and then turn off the light to see through the window. I was up and moving before I had a chance to think better of it, racing across the lawn and parking lot in full view. Even if he was staring directly at me, he'd only see himself and the room reflecting back so long as the light was on. At least that's what I hoped. I ran down the street, not stopping until I reached the convenience store and was back in my car. My ringtone went off again, nearly causing me to swerve onto the sidewalk as I backed out of the parking lot. I connected the call. What? I didn't know who else to call. I need help, please. Please help me. It was Larry. 
His voice was weak and filled with desperation, but I recognized it instantly. I looked down quickly and confirmed his name on the caller ID. My heart felt like it was pounding a hundred beats a minute. I scanned the rearview mirror, anticipating the doctor and his receptionist materializing behind me. The dark street was empty of other cars or people. I tried to concentrate on Larry's words as my mind scrambled to make sense of what I'd just seen. How can I help? Where are you? Victoria said you took a flight to see your parents. No, she was lying. I'm here at home. I never left. I've been here for days, weeks. Please, I have to leave, but I need help. My wife, she's, she's gonna come back. I need to leave before she comes back. Please, help me. His wife, with her shimmering, flawless skin. With her perfect face. Except her eyes didn't blink normal anymore. That was the thing that was off. She hadn't been winking at me. If I'd looked down at her hands earlier today, would I have seen smashed flesh at the ends of her fingers? Images of Joan Stanton, her body a deflated rubbery ruin, her tongue a grotesque tangle of dead flesh, overlaid with flashes of Lana scooping writhing beetles, snatching them out of the air into her mouth. How many other men and women were walking around the city with little plastic containers like Victoria's? Larry had tried to warn me, and now he was trapped. And he sounded hurt. I took a deep breath, trying to sound calm and reassuring. Larry, call 911. Tell them whatever you need to get them over there. I'm coming to help, but we need backup. I stepped on the gas, speeding down the street into the night. I made it there in record time. There were no emergency or police vehicles in front of Larry's house. Victoria's car wasn't in the driveway. The house looked normal, quiet. I made my way up the front walk, hesitating at the door. My adrenaline was still pumping, the blood rushing through me, my heartbeat a rapid thumping but I needed to stop and think before rushing in blindly. It didn't look like anyone was home. The porch light was off, and the house was silent. And then my ears picked up a sound from inside the house. It was faint, but when I focused on it, I could recognize it was the sound of running water. The door shifted slightly, and I could see that it hadn't been closed all the way. I pushed at the knob, and the door drifted open. A wave of humid heat slammed into me, making me cough in surprise. It felt like I was standing in front of a sauna. It was dark inside, except for a dim yellow light above the kitchen stove. My house had the same layout, with a front entrance hall that branched off to a kitchen and dining area on the left and continued on into a sunken living room. On the right would be a longer hallway with closets, 
bedrooms, and bathrooms. Hannah and I had been invited over for a housewarming when Larry and Victoria had first moved in. The house could have easily been featured in one of those home decorating magazines. Hannah had admired the hand-embroidered tapestries and vibrant throw pillows. A bit bohemian for my taste, but even I had to admit how nice the place looked. Now, despite the darkness, I could see the house had been redecorated. And not for the better. Everything had been pulled off the walls and smashed. Some of it was in small heaps, but most of it looked like it had been dragged into the center of the living room and thrown in a pile. Squinting into the darkness, I could make out picture frames, couch cushions, blankets, splintered chairs, table legs, rugs, towels, pillows, heaps of random clothing. All of it crammed into piles on the sopping wet carpet. The sound of running water was much louder inside the house. The kitchen faucet was on, pouring streaming water into a full sink. The water was cascading down the cabinet onto the floor. There was at least an inch of standing water in the kitchen that extended out of sight into the dining room and into the front hallway. The ebb and flow from the splashing water was likely the reason that the door hadn't properly shut. But the sound of running water was too loud to just be from the kitchen. I could hear it also from deeper inside. It sounded like the bathroom faucets were running as well, flooding the entire house. There was a groan from the living room. Movement in one of the piles. It was Larry. I moved inside, the water soaking into my shoes and socks, lapping at my ankles. I tried to stay quiet, but there was no disguising my splashing footsteps. I tried to keep my voice low anyway. I'm here, Larry. Are you all right? The shape lifted, pulling itself up a little. My eyes had adjusted to the darkness, but I had to wipe at my face to clear away the sweat. The heat in here was insane. It felt like the thermostat had been set to 90 degrees. I was already covered in a layer of sweat. My clothes felt glued to my body. Larry sat up fully. He was sitting in one of the larger piles of soggy rugs and ripped cushions. He looked exhausted, possibly thinner, but it was hard to tell because he was wearing sweatpants and a baggy sweater. He was soaking wet, his hair plastered to his scalp, water dripping down his face. He stared myopically at me, and I realized he couldn't see me well because he wasn't wearing his glasses. His head lowered, and he sobbed in relief. Thank you. I tried calling others, but I couldn't get through. And then I dropped my phone after I'd been so careful to hide it from her. He struggled, trying to push himself to his feet. I moved to grab him, and he jerked back, nearly screaming. <clears throat> Don't touch me! <laughs> the shouting sent him into a coughing fit. 
I recoiled, bewildered. I'm sorry. I don't know what it will do to you if you touch me. What, what will do to me? I noticed for the first time how shiny Larry's face was. He was wet, so I thought it was the water. But light from the kitchen and faint moonlight from a crack in the curtain were shining on Larry. Larry gleamed, his skin almost sparkling in the moonlight. The Mayor Clinic did something to Vicky. They gave her these lotions and ointments that she rubbed on her face, on her hands. She said she liked them, and they made her look younger, feel pretty. <coughs> Larry made a choking sound that sounded like a laugh and also a sob. He rubbed at his face, and I could see the skin pull from the pressure. But it pulled too much. His nose and cheek sliding across his face, then settling back into their proper position, like they were made of putty. A sickening jolt coursed through me at the wrongness of it. Normal human skin wasn't supposed to do that. She began acting strangely, and then it got worse. She shut us inside and said we couldn't leave. She turned on all the water, and I... I went along with her. I don't know why. We had to make a shelter. We had to, and then the things we did. The horrible things we did. He trailed off, looking around at the dark mess around him. I licked my lips, trying to think through this madness. Is the Mayor Clinic using some kind of lizard serum on people? Not from lizards. It's a species of dart frogs. Colombia, Peru, somewhere in South America. Some produce a toxin not unlike those used for most cosmetic injections. They've been experimenting with the toxin and refining it. Vicky found out from Dr. Tellez. She wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but she wanted to convince me how good this could be for us. Spotting a floating piece of ripped fabric, I grabbed it, wrapping it around my hand. I held out my covered hand to Larry. You can tell me more later. We'll get you to the hospital and then the police station. He gratefully took my hand, grunting as I helped lift him to his feet. I'd moved closer to help him up. Besides the shininess to his skin, Larry looked the same, except the clear exhaustion. Even through the makeshift glove, I could feel the heat radiating from him. He likely also had some kind of fever from sitting around in water for who knows how long. There was a soft splash behind me, movement through water, and then a voice. What do you think you're doing? I turned. Victoria stood in the open doorway. Watery moonlight streamed around her, outlining her body, hiding her face in darkness. Larry's breathing had gone shallow and ragged, 
a wheeze whistling from the back of his throat. You are not trying to leave, are you? We agreed my way was better. You have to stay here. She stepped forward, water rippling around her, and passed into the faint kitchen light. I'd braced myself for a version of whatever it was Joan Stanton became. A creature with a face half-melted, then frozen, a living grotesque. As the shadows peeled away from Victoria's face, all the hair rose on the back of my neck. Victoria was as beautiful as she'd always been. No, it was more than that. Victoria was stunning. The insane heat and flooding had caused mist to form in the air. Droplets of steam brushed themselves against her face, haloing her wide, dark eyes, her smooth cheeks and shapely nose. Beads of water briefly kissed her skin and rolled away. She should have been sweating, flushed and blotchy from the man-made swamp that was now her house but instead she looked lovely and refreshed. I was filled with the same gut-churning sense of wrongness I experienced watching Dr. Teyes's secretary. Larry seemed to gather himself, shifting away so he wasn't dependent on me to hold him upright. He inched forward, and I followed his lead, hoping she'd give up and just move out of the way. Have to let us leave, Vicky. I didn't agree to anything. You just decided for the both of us. I don't want to do this. I need to go. You can't leave. We're so close. I won't let you. Despite the threat, her tone was compassionate, almost pleading. I'd heard enough. He needs help, Victoria. You both do. Please, just let me take you both to the hospital. Her gaze snapped to me, looking me over, lips curling in contempt. You don't get to interfere with me or my family. She was baring her teeth at me now. I could see too many of them. Her mouth stretching, cheeks and lips pulling like taffy. Get out. Get out of here. Victoria lifted her hands, curling her fingers as if she had claws. Her fingers were still normal-looking, but they were shiny and had the same shimmery cast as her face. Like Larry, the slickness on her skin wasn't from the humidity. There was something gathering at the ends of her fingers that was too viscous to be water. A thin, clear liquid dripped from her thumb in a long, sticky string. They'd been using dart frogs, Larry had said. Dart frogs were some of the most poisonous animals in the world. Victoria lunged, hands clawing towards my face. She moved so fast I had no time to react. I was suddenly shoved to the side and went down with a splash, my hands gripping and knees scrabbling at the soaked carpet. Larry had pushed me. 
I looked over to see him hurl a wet towel at Victoria's head. She jerked away, throwing herself off balance and falling to the ground. Larry was already turning, running for the door. Come on! I got to my feet and ran after him, slamming the front door behind us. I quickly outpaced Larry, who still looked feverish. I could see the physical effort was costing him, and he wouldn't be able to keep it up much longer. I headed for my car, threw open the door, and jumped in. I frantically motioned to Larry. Hurry up! He pounded across the lawn, his gait unsteady, as if his ankles and feet were relearning how to hold him up. His breathing was loud and ragged. He made it to the car, just as the front door of his house slammed open. I reached over and dragged Larry into the car and turned on the engine. Footsteps pounded down the walkway, and there was a hard slap against the window on the passenger side. Victoria hammered at the glass her twisted, too rubbery face close to the window. She was yelling, but it wasn't words. It was outraged shrieking, mindless, animalistic screaming. I threw the car to drive and slammed my foot down on the accelerator. The car rocketed forward, smashing through my mailbox and taking out part of the hedge. I quickly pulled back onto the road, turning down random streets, focused only on getting far away from Victoria and that man-made swamp. Harsh breathing filled the car as Larry and I caught our breath. Abruptly, Larry hunched over his knees, and I thought he was about to be sick. Are you all right? He clutched at himself, arms around his middle. Vicky... My Vicky, I'm so sorry. I'll go back. When I fix this, I'll go back. He sat up, turned to me, a look in his eyes that went beyond desperation. I don't want to go to the hospital like this. Can you take me to my brother's house? He's a doctor and lives by the reservoir. It's not that far from here. Without waiting for an answer, he gave me directions to his brother's place, and then sort of slumped back in on himself. I had some misgivings about the idea, but I adjusted our course to follow his directions. The hospital was more likely to have the equipment and medical staff necessary to treat Larry's fever and deal with his physical changes. Larry was muttering to himself and it took me a few moments to realize he was still talking about Victoria. Reassuring himself that he'd go back and make things better. I cleared my throat, <laughs> trying to distract myself from the lump forming in my chest. My heart went out to the guy. He wanted to save his wife, but I seriously doubted there was anything that could be done. I thought about mentioning Joan Stanton, not all the details, just enough to ease Larry into the fact that his wife might not survive whatever was happening to her. 
For that matter, Larry might not survive what was done to him, either. <clears throat> Larry, did you go to the Meyer Clinic, like Victoria? Did they do something to you there? Larry looked up and shook his head. No. I know things have changed about me. I'm probably still changing. Whatever they gave to Vicky, I think it seeps out of your pores. I've never been to the clinic or used their products. But I think being in physical contact with someone who has can affect you. It happened so fast, and I didn't even notice. He studied his hands, staring at the unnaturally shiny skin in silence. I left him to his thoughts, concentrating on the drive. There'd be time to talk later. The night was long from over. The residential area around the reservoir was spread out, interspersed with a number of parks and hiking trails. The road I was on split off into two narrow, single-lane dirt roads. My headlights lit up a battered green sign for the reservoir, with a yellow arrow pointing to the right and a sign for trailhead parking with an arrow pointing to the left. I slowed, studying the signs. I think we took a wrong turn. Maybe if we try the road farther down. I checked over my shoulder, preparing to back up and turn, when the wheel was violently yanked to the right. Larry forced his foot on top of mine and pushed down on the accelerator. What the hell? I shoved at Larry, fighting for control of the wheel. The car rocketed forward, turning down the dirt road on the right and clipping the sign. We have to go to the reservoir. It was nearly a hiss. He was completely focused on pressing down on my foot, and he clung to the steering wheel with a surprising amount of strength. The car swerved as it bumped along the road, nearly sending us rolling with every lurch. Larry was in a frenzy, crazed with stress or grief, but that didn't mean I'd let him kill us both. I made a fist, preparing to knock him out, when I noticed the movement under his sweater. On his chest, arms, and along his back, his sweater was quivering. Lumps were forming and then flattening, shifting underneath his clothes. A barrier gate appeared in front of us. Larry jerked in surprise, and I managed to stop on the brake. Beyond the gate, 50 feet away, was a wooden dock bordering on a wide lake, water sparkling in the soft moonlight. Larry threw open the passenger door and jumped out. The gate was a single bar across the road, meant to block vehicles. He easily stepped around it and ran for the dock. Larry was moving faster now, seeming to gain strength with each step. He yanked at his clothing, pulling off his sweater and letting it fall to the ground. Greenish-gray clumps of jelly were spread all over Larry's torso. Most of it was on his chest and back, 
The clumps slid over each other, wobbling from some internal activity. He moved away from the headlights, slowing down as he stepped onto the dock and removed the last of his clothing, then lowered himself into the water. I tried to swallow against the gorge rising in my throat. When I was a kid, I was into nature documentaries. I remembered seeing a show about the life cycles of frogs. They were born in egg clutches on land, gooey nests of tadpoles, and after a time they'd wriggle their way onto their parents' back and be taken to a pond where they would develop into adult frogs. Before Larry had left the headlights, I had a clear view of the gelatinous globs clinging to his back. I saw small, legless bodies with grasping hands and flat-tipped fingers. And I saw dozens of eyes. Human eyes. Larry was carefully lowering himself into the reservoir, his half-formed children hidden from view. And then he was gone, disappearing completely beneath the water. I don't remember turning the car around and driving away. It was late enough that there were a few, if any, cars on the road, which was a small blessing. I had one and only one destination in mind. When I got to the morgue, I pounded on the door, not caring if I triggered security alarms or a guard. Hannah opened the door, staring at me in utter astonishment. What on earth? I didn't let her finish. I kissed her, dragging her in as close as I could. I wrapped my arms around her and kissed her again, and then just held on, breathing her in. (laughs) Hannah squeaked in surprise, (laughs) and then laughed as she hugged me back. Wow. Not that I'm complaining, but what brought this on? Did I miss our anniversary? No, I... I just missed you, but I'm glad you're all right. I'll tell you about it later. When you off, we should stay at a hotel. I don't even want to think about going near Larry and Victoria's house. We'd stay somewhere safe while the experts and medical people sorted it out. I needed to call the chief and tell him to bring in the feds. Our small precinct wasn't equipped to deal with this. (laughs) A greeting like that? And a spontaneous romantic getaway? My makeover must have really worked. And you haven't even gotten a good look at me yet. She pulled away from me and tilted her face from one side to the other so I could look at her. She was dressed the same as this afternoon and still wearing her white lab coat, but she was wearing makeup now. Hannah occasionally put on mascara and lipstick for special occasions, but this was different. Whatever she had used had tightened her skin, smoothing away the light wrinkles around her eyes. I faintly noticed that my lips were tingling. 
an itching, burning sensation that was spreading across my face and down my neck. Do you like it? I ran into Victoria today and joined her for a bit of pampering. She had a two-for-one deal on a beauty treatment. I didn't do much, just a tiny injection around the eyes and some face cream and lip gloss. I was surprised at how quick it was. I felt so refreshed afterwards. Do you think I look pretty? Of Creative Reason Media, Inc.